Hi everyone, welcome to the Seiko Musings podcast with me, Phil Seiko. It is the 8th of September today, it's podcast number 49, and today we are thinking about learning to think. So hi everyone, welcome to the podcast. Uh, we are thinking in the main section today about learning to think, um, something which I've been uh, thinking a little bit uh, about lately. And um, I'm, I know that this is a subject that we've touched on quite a bit. We kind of circled around it, but I thought we we're going to look at it directly. It's a pretty big topic. So again, it's something that I'm sure we'll need to come back to. But yeah, how we actually engage with one another, how we think um, about the world and about the, the tough issues of the day. Um, all important questions and all things which we, um, yeah, we need to look into. Uh, before we get to that, um, there's just uh, one or two things to uh, to mention as we get going. Um, so um, there are some um, interesting um, interesting links um, that I've spotted. Uh, I tend to put links on uh, on Twitter. I just kind of reserve it for the the best things that I see um, on Twitter. So if you're on Twitter um, and you follow me, that's twitter.com. Uh, slash Phil Saker or at Phil Saker um, if you're using it. The link is down below. Um, uh, This is where these come from. Um, One of the interesting articles that I saw this week is an article called Lockdowns Did Not Save Lives on the Brownstone Institute. And this is a shorter version of a scientific paper published by someone called John Johnson and Dennis Rancourt, who are uh, scientists, and they've looked into uh, lockdown, the uh, lockdown mandates in America across US states. And they've compared the different uh, US states. And what they have concluded is that the lockdown mandates did not actually save lives. In fact, the reverse was actually true. So that the states which had the uh, the more stringent lockdowns actually had more excess deaths of all-cause mortality. And they were saying that this is, um, it's it's not um, entirely, you know, you can't say, well, it's it's this, that or the other for, for sure. But they said that likely a factor was that, you know, the stress of the lockdown um, would have impacted people who were vulnerable anyway, and that we know that that can cause all sorts of health problems. So it's possibly uh, for that reason um so yeah you might like to have a little look at that it's it's quite long but there's quite a lot of um graphs and things you might like to kind of skip down to the to the conclusion at the bottom and just look at that one of the things which i thought as i was reading through this is that this is the kind of thing that was obvious from um well from quite early on you know the notion that uh the the covid affected people at different levels so you know older people of course were much more at risk from covid than younger people by an order of magnitude Uh, we've known that from early on before the lockdowns are imposed we've known about the harmful effects of the lockdowns Uh, we knew that things like this would happen and it just you know as i was reading this i just felt sad and kind of angry that for so long People just would not countenance having another point of view. And people would just want to shut down anything else. Or, you know, the number of people who said to me, um, you know, that I was being dangerous for questioning, you know, and and that um, not wearing a mask, for example, was a dangerous thing. And yeah, all of that. And that questioning was bad. And it's turning out that actually lockdowns didn't save lives, 
but actually seem to increase the, the mortality um, and make things worse. And that's what I have been saying all along. That's what many of us have been saying all along. And yet we were demonised for it. And uh, I think there's going to be a... Well, there was an article actually um, published by Carl Hennigan and Tom Jefferson on the Trust the Evidence substack. That's a their relatively new substack. If you haven't subscribed to that as well, that's worth looking at. Um, Trusttheevidence.substack.com. I'll try and remember to, to link to that too. But they put out a post a few days ago, um, uh, yesterday in fact, saying uh, the backpedalling race begins. And, you know, it's it's another thing which is, you know, so many MPs now are, and, and kind of people in the media, are trying to say, well, actually, you know, there were harms to lockdown. No, I didn't completely support it. And, you know, just beginning to, to pull back from the, the support that they had at the start. And it's it was utterly and depressingly predictable, wasn't it? You know, that we saw this at the start, and yet there was a November lockdown, there was the... Um, lockdown at the start of 2021 and you know it, it just um it's just an embarrassment and worse and so yeah you might anyway have a look at that and if anyone um is still um you know you're still having those conversations i don't know uh, i i tend not to have those conversations anymore and just let people look at the the mainstream media who are beginning to pick up on it um but uh yeah you might like to to, to find you might find that helpful the other thing which has happened this week, which is not COVID related, is about uh, Dr. Bernard, Rand Dr. Bernard Randall. You may know that he was a school chaplain at um, Trent College, I believe, Nottingham. And he was sacked for preaching a sermon where he said, basically said, you're free to think for yourself. You know, don't believe anything just because someone tells you to. And this is particularly in the context of LGBT uh, issues. And he's now going to employment tribunal for wrongful dismissal. But one of the shocking things that happened this last week is that he, he wrote an article in the Daily Mail, um, which, uh, or, or there was an article about him in the Mail, where it said, um, he said that the bishops... So uh, Libby Lane, I think, was the bishop. She was the first female bishop in the Church of England. And um, the other, other others in the diocese did not support him at all. And in fact, he, he's, his views were called a safeguarding concern, even though, get this, they are the official position of the Church of England and scripture. And um, it's utterly, utterly shocking, the idea that, you know, a bishop in the Church of England and... Uh, and, you know, the, the diocesan machinery could not support a clergyman who was simply expressing what the Church of England officially believes about these things and what the Bible teaches. And in fact, he did it in a very gentle way. He was just saying that, you know, you need to be free to disagree and trying to put, put forward his case. You know, he's not a he's not a kind of, um, you know, an argumentative type just for the, you know, for the sake of, of doing that. Anyway, he was interviewed on uh, GB News um, a few days ago with Calvin Robinson. And uh, you might like to watch that interview. Um, it's, I mean, if you're not aware of the things going on in the Church of England, I know I did a, a video a few weeks ago about why, um, how the Church of England went woke, um, which, which kind of explains some of it and, and looks into my experience. 
But um, if you're, yeah, you're unaware of what's happening in the Church of England, I think this is a new low where the bishops are unwilling to, to support someone very publicly who um, is simply expressing what the Church of England believes and what the Bible teaches. You know, it's, it's crazy. And that's, that's where the Church of England is. And, and that's why I think that uh, increasingly you are going to find people like Calvin Robinson who are leaving the Church of England. You know, because it is simply, I think, becoming impossible to do the job of a, a priest, to do the job of a, um, a pastor in the Church of England. I think we're going to see more and more congregations and churches springing up outside uh, the church. And this is why I think, you know, I, I'm not advocating here for everyone in the Church of England to leave. But I think, you know, we need to consider carefully and, and think, you know, where can we be of most use uh, in the kingdom of God? And sometimes that may be in the Church of England, but I think sometimes not. And I think we need to be, be open to that. So anyway, there's, there's just a, a, little, a little thought that I had. So let's move on then to the, the main section. And we're going to be thinking today about thinking, learning to think. So as I said in the main section today, we are thinking about thinking about learning to think. Now this was kind of prompted by an article that I read uh, a few weeks ago, a couple of weeks ago, by Steve Kirsch. Um, he wrote an article on his Substack, which was called Inside the Mind of One of My Very Smart Pro-Vax Friends. So just to kind of uh, set this up, let me read you uh, what he says. I'll start out by, um, by, by how he introduces it. I recently talked to a friend of mine at a recent social event. We'll call him Bob. He's super smart about most things, but when it comes to the vaccine, he's blind to the truth. He was bragging about how he has been vaxxed six times with the COVID vax and he's perfectly healthy. He can't wait for SB 866 in California to pass, so when his kids turn 12, they can decide to get the vaccine over their mother's objections. Bob thinks I'm a nutcase, cherry-picking data. He says I used to be respected, but after turning anti-vax, people have lost all respect for me. He said I have a religious belief about the vaccine, and I'm not driven by data. What he isn't telling anyone is that he's been losing his vision ever since he got the first Covid vaccine. He used to have 20-20 vision, but now he wears glasses and can't drive at night. When I brought up the data showing the connection between the shots and vision loss, he changed the topic. I showed him two papers showing the more you vaccinate, the sicker you get. Uh, I asked, where are the papers that show the opposite? He ignored my request. He gets his belief system from the mainstream media, full stop. He reasons that if I was correct, surely Bill Gates would agree with me and admit, admit they goofed. It's 100% deference to authority. Bob will not look at the data himself and he doesn't want to discuss it. He will not engage. He thinks that if I was right, there would be more than a handful of people speaking out. So he tallies the size of the support base on each side of an issue instead of looking at the data. So that's an introduction how, uh, how Steve Kirsch um, begins. And I think many of us could resonate with that, even if um, not specifically about the vaccine. But so many of the conversations that I've had over the last 
couple of years, two or three years, have followed the same kind of lines. So um, you know, a typical argument or a debate about lockdown for me um, would be, you know, people saying to me, well, Phil, you're in the minority. You know, you're going against the scientific consensus. So um, a few, um, you know, a couple of years ago, when, when the mask mandate was in, first introduced uh, in this country, I posted up something on uh, on Facebook about masks and about how I didn't think it was right. And quite a few people took me to task in that discussion. And um, And a lot of it was basically, you know, not not kind of going into the the ins and outs of the scientific evidence and the quality of the scientific evidence but actually how it was just because i didn't believe what the media was saying what the scientists on the tv were saying what the majority seemed to believe that was the 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 thing um but i've also had people responding to points selectively um so for example um a few uh, again a, a couple of years ago i think now um or uh, well yeah, over a year ago anyway i did a video about how a lockdown was taking us back to superstition and how it wasn't that uh, you know we were not basing things on sound scientific evidence anymore and i made the point about lockdowns not reducing uh, mortality comparing them to other countries and linking to scientific studies and so on and someone replied to me on that post and was engaging, but they didn't mention the point, which was probably the strongest point that I made, actually, about the scientific studies demonstrating no actual uh, link between the stringency of the lockdown and the mortality rate outcome. And I think that's pretty strong evidence. There's been quite a lot of um, scientific papers looking at it now. And this person didn't mention that at all. It was as if I hadn't even mentioned it. He was just quibbling about uh, some of the other things that I mentioned, raising quite minor points, really. And um, and when I tried to raise that with him, he said, oh, yeah, well, I'll you know look at that. And then he never responded to me about it. So I'm not sure whether he even looked at, um, at what it was said. Um, but this is the kind of thing which happens as well, that people might respond to some of your points partially, but not really respond to the main kind of force of the argument that you, you wanted to make. And people would very often respond emotionally. Now, people said to me things like, well, it's Phil, it's dangerous to question. You know, you're putting people's lives at risk. You're killing granny by questioning. You're making it less likely for people to obey the restrictions. And as we all know, the restrictions are the only thing which are preventing um, the virus from letting rip and from destroying the NHS or whatever it may be. So that is that was the problem. Um, people would often respond emotionally rather than kind of logically and, and rationally. Um, that was typical for me, and I'm sure that you found uh, the same thing when you were having debates about lockdowns as well with people. So how did we get to this point? How have we got to the point where it seems that people can't really engage a logical argument or an argument with facts and evidence on its own terms? Um, I think there are a couple of main reasons. There, are, There's a lot wrong and we could spend hours and hours and hours, I'm sure, going through it. But I'm going to raise a couple of things. If there are, I'm sure there are other things too. Maybe you could let me know what those are in the, um, the comments below or on, on Telegram, on the discussion. 
Um, the first thing I'll mention is that knowledge has become a specialised subject. So it's knowledge now is not something, generally speaking, that we can gain by observing the world and then thinking about it. But the, the, the people who really know things are the experts and what they say is the truth. And I think that schools and universities now are more about informing students about what the experts say than they are about teaching them to gain knowledge themselves. So, you know, it's, it's very much a culture of deference to experts. That's what children and students are sort of inculcated into. It's, you know, you defer to the expert knowledge rather than you gain knowledge yourself. I think you can see examples of this, for example, uh, in uh, not just in lockdown, and we've mentioned that already, um, but also in things like climate change, where the idea that you could think for yourself uh, when it comes to uh, to the climate, you could read for yourself, you could do anything other than, you know, go just go with what we are told is the consensus. Um, I think that is uh, very much in evidence, you know, that you're, you're not just not allowed to think for yourself when it comes to, to climate change. Um, so, and that's because it's sort of become this specialised, there's a consensus of scientists, there's a consensus of experts, we're told, and you're not allowed to question that, even if you, you're actually looking at what other scientists actually say. Uh, and I think the Daily Skeptic have done a really good job over the last few months, uh, Chris Morrison, the environment editor, looking at what um, different scientists are actually saying. Uh, for example, the um, uh, the Arctic sea ice uh, is at its highest level for some years, and the um, the coral reef, um, you know, uh, um, what is it um, that we, the uh, that we were told the Great Barrier Reef that we were told for many years was dying is now you know growing faster than ever, all of that sort of thing. So yeah, um, question question everything. Um, the second thing um, that I think feeds into this not being able to think is the way that most people now, I think, feel rather than think. I think most people now value empathy and kind of, you know, feeling for someone over dispassionate logic and reasoning. Uh, there have been a couple of books written about this, actually. Uh, one of them was uh, Spoilt Rotten by Theodore Dalrymple. That was written about 10 years ago. And then um, Against Empathy by Paul Bloom, written about um, five or six years ago. And both of those are good books and, and worth reading. Um, but just saying how, you know, we need to be able to separate out, you know, the logic from the emotion. And that doesn't mean that we, we don't feel empathy, but we must feel empathy in a logical way, if you like. And I'll come on to that more in a moment. Uh, but it is true that many people simply feel what is right uh, and what is wrong rather than reasoning their way to it. And this is the, um, just what um, Jonathan Haidt um, said in his book, The Righteous Mind. Again, I think that was published about 10 years ago. Um, but he says that you know people in, intuit uh, what's right and wrong. And I think that was the case with um, we've learnt, I think, to intuit, to trust experts. 
And so that's why I think when it came to lockdown, when we were told by men who were, you know, scientific and, and it all looked very, uh, you know, it all looked very scientific. That's why people went with it, because, you know, we sort of intuitively trust the experts um, rather than our own judgment. And and that's that's a problem. Um, as an example of this, I think, you know, a few years ago when same sex marriage was being debated in in parliament i you know i mean i hadn't really looked into it much before so i wanted to look into all of the different angles and i wanted to to say well if i believe as a christian that the bible says that marriage is between a man and a woman then there must be reasons why that is the case so i i did i looked into it i found some an interesting paper by philip blonde and roger scruton for example and i wrote about that on my blog and the debates that I had, I mean, people were very, very angry with the fact that I would even ask these questions. And people were angry about the fact that, you know, they thought it was, you know, almost um, homophobic even to ask that that question, uh, which which I was just, you know, trying to engage with with debates in a logical and, you know, um, just trying to think way. I tried to do what is right. And people were unable to, or some people were unable to see that and unable to um, to actually engage with me. So this this kind of thing has been going on for some years. And I think what happened over the last couple of years has really put it on steroids. But it's been going on for some time. And it's coupled with that is the rise of identity politics. You know, the idea that if you're gay or if you're transgender or something, then any argument, any intellectual argument against that or you know what something which you know you perceive as a threat is is actually must be shut down you know that's why cancel culture exists so it's all bound up together this whole feeling and not thinking There are other areas um, as well. I only mentioned a couple of things, but um, some of those things I've talked about before on the podcast, if you haven't listened to those episodes, you might also um, I'd like to go back to episode 39, where I talked about the fantasy reality, the, uh, the simulacrum, um, which is a, a word that a philosopher called Baudrillard uh, used, which is a fantasy reality, which is maintained by lies. And... Um, the how that's relevant to this is that uh, it can be a fantasy reality of course can be spotted by asking difficult questions so if you think for example about the um the question of asylum seekers and refugees coming over uh, to this country and someone i saw just earlier today on um, twitter was saying well why are people so angry about a small number of refugees coming when they've had to escape such hardship uh, and so on but you have to ask awkward questions. You have to ask, why do they want to come to this country, having crossed through several safe countries when they could have claimed asylum in any one of those countries? Why are they coming over here, making a dangerous crossing? You know, why is it that 60% of them are Albanian? You know, Albanian is not a sort of war-torn country and it's not that that sort of uh, a country. And, and, and all of those kind of awkward questions, you know, we must base it on on the actual data rather than what we would like to be the case you know and just thinking um it's of a fantasy reality that all of the people over there in france are legitimate refugees and asylum seekers uh, i think is stretching the bounds of credibility 
which is not to say that we shouldn't you know treat people with compassion of course we should but it's you have to be you know um wise about it don't you uh, so um that was episode 39 about the fantasy reality and um episode 42 we were looking at amongst other things narcissism and how we live in a narcissistic culture and again i think that that has a direct bearing on thinking because you know it's so easy to hold a belief when it, it flatters yourself like for example uh, virtue signaling you know if you go back to the the question of refugees and migrants people like to think that they are virtuous because they think we should just welcome all refugees and all migrants without having to worry about the, the difficult questions like how do we pay for it where do we house them all um, and you know and, and so on and so forth i mean the things that she mentioned you know so because of sort of our narcissistic culture people like beliefs and ideas which you know give them a sense inflate their own ego rather than they're actually related to the truth and you know this is why i think we have this problem people are unable to ask questions and people are unable to engage in debate because you know it, it would actually um prick their own ego and that's the that's the problem a part of the problem as well so what do we need to learn to do when it comes to thinking i've got again a, a, this is a summary which i think you could probably add more to but this is what how i would i would put it uh, i think the first thing is that we need to uh, integrate facts and logical arguments with emotions so you know how uh, what is best for someone is not necessarily what always you know, feels right as an example you think about giving money to a homeless person you know it may seem like the right person you know the right thing to do you know you're there they're begging they're asking for money on the streets and you think oh i'll give them some money to help them but actually that money and homeless charities will warn against doing this because that money could be used on drink or drugs and not actually on anything that will help them often if someone on the, is on the street um, for other for reasons of addiction or things like that and so a a way of helping them if you really want to help them you need to think well what's best for them you know how can i actually help this person you know maybe buy them a meal or buy them a drink or, or something like that or you know maybe giving to a homeless charity rather than giving directly to homeless people and that would be a much smarter way of, of actually helping them rather than just enabling them to continuing their self-destructive patterns of behavior um, this is the case that Paul Bloom makes in his book Against Empathy, which I've already mentioned. But the subtitle is The Case for Rational Compassion. And, you know, the idea that we need to be compassionate but rational about it. You know, we need to integrate our feelings and our logic uh, to, to, um, to be compassionate. Uh, the second thing that we need to do is to, to step back and assess the whole situation, not just a few parts. Um, I think so often debates now focus on one or two issues when there are so many other angles to consider. You think, I mean, I know we talked about lockdowns and we talked about it to the death, but the, you know, the question was always, you know, how do we mitigate uh, against covid and it was never about how do we mitigate against the the harmful effects of lockdown it was never a balanced discussion and a, and a, the pros and the cons it was always on one thing 
But there are many other issues which have been like that too. Um, I was thinking about single-use plastics and how there's been a campaign against single-use plastics, like, um, you know, the wrappers that you get, for, for example, broccoli or, or what have you in supermarkets. And uh, that, there was a campaign. I remember that a few years ago, some supermarkets tried wrapping them in um, paper wrapping, which was, you know, recyclable. And what they actually found was it was worse because they ended up throwing away far more food. So these things are always a trade-off. And you need to think about the pros and cons rather than just thinking about one particular angle. We know we need to look, step back and look at the whole. Uh, the third thing we need to do is to learn to respond fairly to other points of view, not just react. Now, it's so easy to just give your gut reaction to when someone says something you disagree with. But we need to learn to actually listen to what they're saying and to, to engage with them. There have been times actually when people have disagreed with me. They've written me um, an email or, you know, comments sometimes. I've I've um, printed out what, what they've said and gone through it with a pencil. You know, just to make sure that I've understood what they're saying. Because it's I think it's very easy on a screen to just skim over and not to actually, you know, respond directly. To, to kind of respond accurately. You just kind of react rather than think and respond. So, you know, taking a bit of time to think um, is good. So, so we need to learn, you know, not simply to just react, uh, but to respond. And the fourth thing is we need to learn uh, that opinions can be held for political reasons, such as the, the reality of groupthink. Um, I've been astonished how many people have been naive about this that you know the idea that politicians are as pure as the driven snow and are not at all influenced by having shares in big pharma or anything like that um, it's it's incredible to me to see the naivety that people have when it comes to the media and politicians and so on and the opinions that they've had you know opinions can be very political and we need to be have our eyes open to that so to summarize all of that what we really need to do is legitimise thinking for ourselves rather than simply going with the opinions of other people. And we need to legitimise actually saying, I've got an opinion on that, I've thought about it, I've considered the evidence and I'm willing to listen to you and debate with you. But you need to persuade me with the evidence rather than telling me that my opinion is a minority opinion or, or what have you. You need to give me better evidence and better arguments. So how do we actually go about doing that? How do we go about kind of um, learning to think in that way? Uh, well, it's easy to blame everything on education and to say, well, it's the school's fault. You know, I've already mentioned the schools and experts and, and so on. And I think, yes, they, they need to share their part of the blame. Education, though, cannot fix everything. And that's something we'll come on to in a moment. But I think it's important at the outset to say, you know, so often, uh, you know, people will leap to education as being the thing to to fix everything. And I think, you know, it's it's a tool. It's a powerful tool. But we must recognise its limitations as well. Nonetheless, having said that, I think critical thinking should be taught in school and added to, you know, the, the typical you know, reading, writing and arithmetic. Um, sort of the basics um, I think children should be taught to think you know and, and ask you know well 
to, to assess things like, well, what's the strength of, of the evidence there? You know, how strong do you think that evidence is? Is this source trustworthy? You know, what do you think? And and have debates within a class. I think children who are, you know, even, you know, fairly young can can understand some of these kind of things. And, you know, my daughter, um, who's uh, my eldest daughter, who's just coming up to nine, I think is beginning to to be able to, to pick up on, on some of these kind of things and, and think for herself, um, you know, um, a bit more. And, and um, I think teenagers particularly can really could really do this and so i you know we need to we need to teach them to do that rather than just teaching them what to think to actually teach them how to think and you know i think so much of the way that we teach children and young people is um, assuming that they are incapable of that kind of critical thinking and just telling them what the opinion what the opinions they should have are you know rather than encouraging them to develop that thinking for themselves um, ability and um, I did a video on um, my other channel on Understand the Bible um, last week called The Bigotry of Low Expectations, uh, where I, I talked about that and how I think, you know, so often we just, if you assume people can't deal with those arguments, then you're, you know, you're, you're actually, you know, cutting them off. You're, you're saying, I don't think you're capable of this and you're doing them a disservice, a huge disservice. Um, because you're saying, I don't think you're capable of this, uh, where many people are. So let's finish off then by thinking about um, thinking and Christianity. Because I think uh, Christianity has got a bad reputation in certain circles for being anti-intellectual. And I think there is a, a, a grain of truth in in those critiques um, because i think there has been a strain of anti-intellectualism in christianity through the uh, the 20th century and not wanting to get involved in the academy and just you know don't ask questions just believe you know the bible says so just believe which i think is um i think is flawed i might come on to that um but actually you know that's not what christianity is i think it's actually the opposite so if I just give you a few examples from the Bible, you know, the Ten Commandments, the Ten Commandments were never supposed to be, you know, kind of black and white in the sense that, you know, when God said, do not murder, he didn't mean that any kind of behavior up and until actually killing someone was legitimate. So, so if you beat someone within an inch of their life, but didn't kill them, that that was OK. But murder, well, that was just a step too far. You know, that we were supposed to think about these things for ourselves and to say, well, OK, we shouldn't murder. How does that mean we need to treat people instead? And how do we, you know, how does God actually want us to be? Uh, we're encouraged in the Bible to get wisdom. So the book of Proverbs talks a lot about wisdom, um, but also um, there are other wisdom books. This is um, what it says in Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verse 9. All this I saw as I applied my mind to everything done under the sun. Applied my mind. That's what it says. And Ecclesiastes is really a, it's like a philosophy book, really, just thinking about life and death and what it teaches us. And uh, I think, you know, the, so the example of the Bible is actually to think carefully about things. Sound judgment is a gift from God. You know, we learn that from uh, the example, for example, of um, uh, Nebuchadnezzar. In Daniel chapter 4, 
where Nebuchadnezzar's mind, his reason was taken away from him from a time. So God gives and takes away our ability to reason. It is a, a God-given thing. And in the New Testament, we are encouraged to use our minds. This is um, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Again, demolishing arguments, taking thoughts captive to Christ. I think that's a good um, summary of the intellectual side of the Christian life, you know, which is actually using our minds to think about God and to, to understand the way that he, he wants us to live. So, you know, we are encouraged as Christians to use our minds. Now, the fool, we've talked about the fool before in the, the Building a Christian Worldview series, um, but the fool, you know, sin has corrupted our ability to think and to reason. Um, and as we know that, you know, Christians come to Christ, repent of sin, you know, we should have, with the help of the Holy Spirit, the ability to, to do more of that reasoning than we could without you know, and, and so Christians should actually be showing the world how to think rather than, you know, be anti-intellectual. We should be at the forefront of saying, no, this is how we think. And actually on that, uh, I think it's important to say that Christianity is conducive to thinking. And the reason is because it is built on reality. Now, as we've seen many times, I've, I've said many times through the podcast, that God is fundamental to reality. You know, you can't be a Christian without dealing with reality at a deep level, you know, because God is the source of all being, the source of everything that exists. And so, therefore, Christians have a consistent worldview, you know, believing through from the, the source of all being through to the way that the world actually is. You know, we have a complete uh, consistent worldview. And so we are free to, to completely embrace the truth and to reject lies at every level. And in fact, the Bible says that God is truth and that Satan is the father of lies. So therefore, Christians should be committed to the truth. And that means that you know, we should be at the, the forefront of uh, leading the way in, in thinking and in thinking about what the truth actually is. And Christians should also be uh, engaging with debate um, engaging others in debate. Um, this is something that we're encouraged to do in the New Testament. Uh, so, for example, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. So be prepared to give a reason uh, to anyone who asks for the hope that you have. So we are to be... You know, every Christian is is told, you know, we need to be prepared to engage people about about Jesus. But also, I think about the truth. You know, if we care about the truth as Christians and God is the truth, then we should be prepared to engage people about what the truth is, even if it, it seems to it's not directly about Jesus. You know, if truth comes back to God, then it is a matter actually of what um, of God and about you know being Christian. Um, loving other people, which is what it is all about at the end of the day, uh, should involve giving them a fair hearing as well. Now, if we love people as Christians, then we'll want to listen to them because that involves treating them with respect 
as a, an image bearer of God, even if that means we disagree with them. So we should be prepared to give people a fair hearing, while also being mindful of the sinful reasons, the wrong reasons, which might be going on behind someone's opinions. So I can debate people on the existence of God, for example, uh, knowing that uh, I, I, I know I'm right, <laughs> but at the same time, um, you know, I don't think that someone else is, is, is immoral or or what have you, just for holding different opinions, even though I know that, you know, there is a there is a, tr a kind of spiritual truth behind that rejection of God. Um, so, you know, you can you can debate people honestly uh, without, you know, demonizing them. And, and that's the final thing that I wanted to say. You know, we shouldn't demonize other people for holding different opinions, but we can treat them with respect and dignity and actually engage their arguments. And that, I think, all comes down from Christianity. And this is why I said that education isn't enough, because, you know, we need to actually have more than that. We need to, to know how to engage. Um, a lot of that is from this, this Christian view of people, you know, being in God's image, engaging people with minds, you know, believing that we're created with the capacity to reason and so on, treating people with that dignity um, to be able to, to argue with them rather than actually say no i think you're you're immoral you're a terrible person because you disagree with me so i'm not going to engage with you so i appreciate this has been a, a slightly longer um main section than than usual and i'm sorry for going on a little bit about this um it's i i think as i've been doing this i realize it's such a massive topic this topic of thinking and um it's something that i would like to keep thinking about um and i hope that um that it sparked off some interesting kind of um, lines of thought for you as well, and you found it helpful. But let's uh, let's just conclude with a few final final words. Christianity is not antithetical to critical thinking; it's actually the opposite. You know that Christianity is the foundation, I believe, of critical thinking, and of being able to engage with the world as it really is, with with reality. Education can go some way to solving the problem of critical thinking. Um, I think it is it's important to say, you know, we we education is a key thing, and this is why the you know, all of the woke the progressives are trying to take over education because they know how important it is. Um, so I I do appreciate education is important, but it's not it's not the whole of the uh, the issue. It will not solve everything. Actually, I believe that a recovery of true Christianity will do more to help than anything else. And we need to be teaching it to young people. You know, we need to be teaching young people to to actually think and especially to think in a Christian way. And um, I'll just finish with um, with something I, I, I thought of. Um, you know, last night I was uh, helping out with a with a youth group, with a, a youth group for secondary school age um, uh, children or well teenagers you know and um and uh i uh, they had a bible study kind of time and but as part of that bible study i was just sitting in a, a small group with a couple of other with a couple of the teenagers and um we were we asked some questions about a particular bible passage and, and i asked them a hard question and i asked them a question which really required thinking and i i could kind of it was almost like i'd you know they weren't used to that you know like oh well, what are we supposed to think now you know and i think so often 
children and teenagers, they're just not required really to do any hard thinking on their own. They're just meant to accept what they are told. And, you know, I think we need to actually treat um, children and especially older ones, teenagers, with that dignity of saying, no, you need to think. You know, you, you don't just get to sit and listen and write down what the right answer is. You know, you need to work it out. You need to think hard about this. And this is especially true when it comes to teaching Christianity, um, because, you know, that is where I think there's so much there which actually leads to to genuine thinking and teaching them about worldviews and, and so on. A lot of the kind of stuff I've been doing on the podcast. Anyway, um, that was just my thought. Let's finish now the, with a, a reflection on another psalm. We're looking at Psalm um, 58 today. So we're going to finish uh, thinking about that. So let's finish today with a reflection on Psalm 58. Um, this is a psalm. I, I just happened to read this the other day. And I thought, how appropriate this is. I've got to mention this on the on the podcast. So this is um, Psalm 58. Uh, it's not a very long psalm. I'll read it out and then we'll have a few thoughts. Do you rulers indeed speak justly? Do you judge people with equity? No, in your hearts you devise injustice and your hands meet out violence on the earth. Even from birth the wicked go astray. From the womb they are wayward, spreading lies. Their venom is like the venom of a snake, like that of a cobra that has stopped its ears, that will not heed the tune of the charmer, however skilful the enchanter may be. Break the teeth in their mouths, O God. Lord, tear out the fangs of those lions. Let them vanish like water that flows away. When they draw the bow, let their arrows fall short. May they be like a slug that melts away as it moves along, like a stillborn child that never sees the sun. Before your pots can feel the heat of the thorns, whether they be green or dry, the wicked will be swept away. The righteous will be glad when they are revenged, when they dip their feet in the blood of the wicked. Then people will say, Surely the righteous still are rewarded. Surely there is a God who judges the earth. Okay, Psalm 58, talking about rulers and about those um, rulers doing what is just and right or not doing what is just and right and uh, it's clearly written for a time when David is thinking about uh, rulers who are doing the wrong thing you know they are acting unjustly they're devising injustice they are meeting out violence even and um, I was thinking you know although we are not living in times when um our own leaders are doing violence um, per se nonetheless I think they are doing what is unjust which is that you think about the energy crisis for example they've spent so long embarking on a course where they've ploughed money into unreliable uh, renewables and have not done any investing in sort of traditional energy forms or things which were like nuclear energy which would be more reliable and actually keep lights on and so on you know they've been pursuing a political agenda and I think it, it leads to injustice because you know it's it seems to be at no cost to the the politicians they do it to make themselves feel good for saving the planet but it hits the poor the hardest because it's the people who can't afford electricity and the people who can't afford gas who are going to be really hit uh, this winter and that's going to be a lot of people 
Um, so, you know, it is injustice, even if it may not be violence. And you could say something similar when it comes to COVID vaccines and about how all of these problems, the excess deaths that we've been seeing by refusing to uh, to really look into the causes of that, uh, then again, it is a kind of violence. You know, it's not caring about people potentially dying because of something which is which a government is is undertaking. So it is a kind of violence, uh, even if it is not actually, you know, throwing people to the lions like used to be done. Um, and it, it talks about the uh, the wicked going astray, um, like the like venom. Um, you know, even like um, not you know putting your fingers in your ears and saying I'm not I'm not listening I'm not listening to the right I'm not listening to God, um, and and uh, so David says break the teeth in their mouths O God, tear out the fangs of those lines. It's saying basically de defang them, you know, make them impotent, make them unable to actually carry out their plans of um, injustice and violence. Actually prevent them from doing carrying out those plans and it made me think a little bit about uh, things like the world economic forum and agenda 2030 and the way that um, you know the the world is kind of moving along a particular agenda and seems to be moving towards that goal uh, whatever you think about that it does seem like you know we are at the mercy of very powerful people uh, at the moment you know the rich and the powerful and this is saying you no. Know, it says, don't let them carry out unjust or unjust plans. Um, you know, just break their, you know, break the teeth. Don't let them actually get, you know, um, do the harm which they want to do, whether it's witting or not. And I think, you know, I think the problem is for many of our, our leaders, they think they're doing good uh, when actually they are doing harm. Um, and then this, th it finishes out is before your pots can feel the heat of the thorns the wicked will be swept away and um, Alec Matia said that he, he thinks it's quite hard apparently in the Hebrew to, to know what's going on but he thinks this is an expression so um, before your pots can feel the heat of the thorns he, he thinks it's a bit like saying before you can say Jack Robinson you know that um, thorns would flash up and then die, die away very quickly so, you know, before your pots can even, you know, get hot because of that fire, which the thorns have, have, have set up, you know, they would flash and then go. Um, the wicked will be swept away and the righteous will be glad when they are avenged. Uh, so you know, the righteous, of course, is not those who who sort of see righteousness, have righteousness in themselves, but actually who trust in in Jesus Christ, who look to the Lord um, and and seek to obey him. And then it says, then people will say, surely the righteous still are rewarded. Surely there is a God who judges the earth. And this is why justice is important. It's because you know, people are looking and watching. And when injustice is happening, then you think, well, what does God not care about this? Does God not care that the, the poor are not unable to afford energy bills? Does God not care that... You know, it's the, the poorest who seems to get hit hardest time and again. Um, and of course, he does care. And it is when things change that actually we will see, you know, that, that actually good does triumph over evil. And that that is a cause for, for our celebration. You know, that we will see that God does what is right and just and good. 
and that people will see that and give glory to him. Let me just finish by reading you what um, Alec Matia said in his reflection on this passage. This is taken from a book called, um, there we go, Psalms by the Day, which is a really good um, sort of devotional commentary on the Psalms. I find it really, if I've I probably find this more helpful than most actual commentaries on the Psalms. You know, it's it's really good. But let me just finish by reading you what he says. Uh, mind you, the prayer made in verse 6 is vivid, practical, resolute, realistic. Dare we pray like that? We admit it. When we pray on a world scale, we like to concentrate our thought on the more bland request that suffering be relieved, the hungry fed, persecuted Christians be delivered, prisoners released. But to say the least, there are situations when these desirable ends can only be realistically met if unjust governments and their representatives are overthrown, cast down and deprived of their power to injure. Is it time we too began to pray about teeth being broken and fangs drawn? And I thought that was a good a good message, that it's okay, it is biblical, to pray that the unjust rulers would not have the power to do what is unjust. And that is something that we can we can do about it. You know, we're not just sitting idly you know, while we, we wait for the terrible things to happen, but we actually pray against it and pray that God would uh, turn those the leaders and rulers who are acting unjustly uh, to actually do what is what is right. Um, so why don't we finish praying in that and we'll pray also about uh, the other things that we've been uh, we've been talking about and let's pray for um uh, Bernard Brandle as I think the tribunal is going on this week as well um, before we finish so let's uh, let's uh, close with a prayer Heavenly Father we thank you as we read through this psalm that we see that uh, it is good and right uh, to pray that those uh, rulers who are doing what is unjust uh, would turn and that you would prevent them from carrying out their harmful plans. And we pray, Lord, that you would uh, accomplish that in our day, uh, Heavenly Father, that those who have plans that will harm the, the poor, uh, the poorest in society the most, uh, would um, not be able to carry out those plans, um, but that actually you, Lord, would bring about something different and something better. And uh, we just pray, Lord, that you would help us to be confident in you and not be fearful, but to trust that you have the power to bring about real change. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us as a society to, to learn to think and to debate and discuss things in the right way uh, once again. And uh, we pray, Lord, that you would especially help our younger people uh, to be able to reason, to think, and to, to discuss these ideas in a a way which is open and you know really helps to get to the truth, to get to reality. And I pray, Lord, that many churches up and down the country would be able to teach children and young people in a way which really engages them with the gospel and engages their minds, encouraging them to think. And that, Lord, we do pray for uh, Dr. Bernard Brandle, who is, I believe, the tribunal is ongoing this week, and uh, pray for a just outcome him and uh, pray Lord that you would enable him to trust you uh, through this time and that you would bring him to the where you want him to be and that justice would be done in this situation and that uh, you would be working to change the Church of England um, but to bring a real renewal across the whole church in this land.
So we pray and ask all of these things in Jesus' name and ask for your protection and your guidance upon ourselves in this coming week. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thanks so much, everyone, for uh, joining me. I know it's been a longer one today, but I hope that you've uh, you've appreciated it. If you'd like to leave a comment, you can do that on YouTube uh, down below, or you can telegram me, um, the link's down below, or you can email me through sacredmusingspod at gmail.com, and I can always uh, mention any emails um, next week. And just to say as well, if you'd like to support me, there is a buy me a coffee link, um, and that is down below as well. And that's just kind of like... Um, you know you can um, yeah it's just a way of donating really but in, in the, the guise of buying a coffee um, so you can do that and, and I'm sort of freelance it's a bit complicated but I really do appreciate that thanks so much though to everyone whether you've watched listened all of those things and um, if you'd like to to give back in another way then on YouTube you can like subscribe or on the podcast you can leave a rating um, if your podcast provider allows you to, or uh, even a review, that would really help as well, help uh, other people to to, to um, find the podcast. And uh, do share it with your friends, you know, if you think they'd like it. Um, and um, yeah, thanks so much, everyone, for, for watching, for joining me, um, for listening. And I look forward to seeing you again soon. In the meantime, God bless. <laughs>